It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Well, I seem to be in the news today and yesterday. My interview with Ron DeSantis airing yesterday on Media Buzz which is available online, along with some other fine segments, uh, picked up by The Hill, Real Clear Politics, The Messenger, and others. Um, And I thought it was a very revealing interview. I mean, DeSantis is skilled at this, so, you know, he obviously got in his talking points. But he certainly accused Donald Trump of being a flip-flopper on the abortion issue. Although I pointed out that because Trump is against a national ban and has criticized the governor for the six-week ban in Florida, he's still getting praise from pro-life groups who think he could help further reduce the number of abortions. And I said, isn't he closer to the national consensus that you are? And obviously, DeSantis didn't agree with that. And he also raised questions about certain pro-life organizations having an agenda. He also said the media while being unfair to him, uh, and that's not a bad thing for him in Iowa. He was in Iowa when I interviewed him. Because I guess we're not that popular in the Republican Party. And he said, uh, you know, how do you think it plays with Iowa crowds when I say that I'm the one the media is trying to stop? And he accused the press of providing air cover for Donald Trump. There was a lot more in there about the border, and it was a pretty wide-ranging interview. You know, you don't just, presidential candidates don't just pop up on your show. It takes a couple of weeks of behind-the-scenes work, and then even if they agree to do it, you got to work out the logistics and where they're going to be and where you're going to be. As I mentioned on the show, like I've interviewed in this cycle Mike Pence, Chris Christie, Ron DeSantis now for the third time, but only Nikki Haley, whose people tell me they keep wanting to do it, has declined to show up. That's her right. But I invited her again yesterday on the air. Okay, this is, I can't get my head around this. CNN is taking aim at a controversial New York Times opinion piece that openly speculated the other day whether Taylor Swift is a closeted queer person. And her people are pissed off about it. Um, one of those close to the situation saying because of her massive success, there is a tailor-shaped hole in people's ethics. This article wouldn't have been allowed to be written about Sean Mendez or any other male artist whose sexuality has been questioned by fans. There seems to be no boundary some journalists won't cross when writing about Taylor, regardless of how invasive, untrue, and inappropriate it is. So is this 5,000-word piece by editor Anna Marks, in which she talks about Taylor Swift, you know, undoubtedly the most popular artist on the planet right now, uh, dropping hints, even before it was fashionable, even before queer identity, I'm quoting now, was undeniably marketable to mainstream America, they suggest to queer people that she is one of us. Now, it is true, undeniably, that Taylor Swift has embraced the LGBTQ community and uh, criticized anti-gay legislation. 
But as recently as 2019, she told Vogue magazine, um, rights are being stripped from basically everyone who isn't a straight, white, cisgender male. I didn't realize until recently that I could advocate for a community that I'm not part of. And by the way, doesn't she have a boyfriend? Um, so this piece just seems to fall short. It just wants to prove this point. And I don't understand why the Times ran it or allowed it to go so far. I mean, where does anybody get off speculating about the sexuality of a public figure? Wow. All right. Um, we got a lot to cover here today, folks. This growing controversy over Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin is nothing short of an outrage. The basic facts are these. He was hospitalized beginning on New Year's Day. But nobody knew that. This is a guy who's in the nuclear chain of command. And apparently we're now, the details are dribbling out. He had some kind of undisclosed medical procedure uh, back on December 22nd. We still don't know what that was or the state of his health. But then he had to be hospitalized on New Year's Day and for five days did not disclose this publicly. And it's worse than that. I mean, media have a right to know this guy's not running some tiny regulatory agency. He is the Pentagon chief. And the media didn't know. For three or four days, the White House didn't know. The President of the United States did not know that his defense chief was incapacitated. And he had gone back to the hospital with severe pains and was in the ICU. So he's in intensive care. So it's not nothing. It's not like, uh, you know, some incredibly tiny surgical procedure. So he, he was back in Walter Reed. And here's how Politico puts it. Lloyd Austin is one of the most reclusive Pentagon chiefs in recent memory. That's creating a major problem for him now. Austin's failure to perform his most senior advisors, congressional leaders, and even President Joe Biden of his hospitalization last week due to complications uh, has erupted into a controversy that's left senior White House and Pentagon officials infuriated and befuddled. Some Republicans called for investigations or said Austin should be disciplined or fired. The joint chief chairman wasn't told until Tuesday. The deputy defense secretary, whose name is Kathleen Hicks, she was, she was on vacation in Puerto Rico. She was asked to take over his duties, which is the usual procedure. But she did not know that he was in the hospital. It backfired, said one senior U.S. official. Um, Austin is well known as an introvert, shunning the cameras, keeping only a few close confidants during his military career. Even when he was the four-star general, 
overseeing uh, U.S. Central Command during Iraq, rarely held press conferences, hasn't held one now as Pentagon chief since July, takes only a, a, a small handful of journalists when he travels officially. Mike Pence said on one of the Sunday shows this was a dereliction of duty. And, you know, Austin put out this statement saying, I could have done a better job of informing people. But he's still not informing people. And there's this, he's blaming it on the fact that his chief of staff was ill at the same time. The chief of staff would be the one to notify the White House. I'm sorry, that is a crock. Anybody on his staff could have notified the White House. He could have picked up the phone and notified the White House. You haven't heard the end of this story. Meanwhile, police were called to a restaurant in Colorado where Congresswoman Lauren Boebert and her ex-husband, Jason Boebert, allegedly got into a physical altercation. This is according to the police chief in that town who was investigating. The Daily Beast was the first to report on this fight, saying that Jason Boebert called the police after meeting with the congresswoman and claimed he was a victim of domestic violence. Jason Boebert told the Daily Beast, they talked to the guy, that Lauren Boebert had punched him in the face several times. Now, the congresswoman, by the way, who has recently switched districts in Colorado to aid her reelection chances after that kind of humiliating incident where she was making out with her then-boyfriend in a movie theater in Denver. She says this is one of the reasons she's moving away. This is a sad situation for all that keeps escalating. Another reason why I'm moving, I didn't punch Jason in the face, and no one was arrested. Well, he apparently is not pressing charges. And we have a further exchange now uh, of rocket fire between Hezbollah in Lebanon and Israel after the assassination of a senior Hamas commander. And when I asked uh, our reporter in Israel, Trey Yinkst, on yesterday's show, whether or not we have reached the point of a wider war, everybody, the media is always saying, we're we're looking at a wider war, we're on the brink of a wider war. Uh, We must not get into a wider war. And I say, we're already there. Israel fighting Lebanon to the north, Hezbollah, of course, backed by Hamas, Hamas um, in the Gaza Strip. Uh, or other Iranian proxies dropping bombs or taking over ships in the Red Sea. I think it's already there. Okay, story number one. President Biden's speech near Valley Forge on Friday. Uh, This was the most personal attack on Donald Trump that we've seen since Joe Biden became president. You remember early on, he was just the former guy. He wouldn't even mention Trump by name. He didn't want to talk about him. He wanted to move forward. But now, you know, shall we say an increasing likelihood that Biden will face off against Trump, depending on the outcome of the Iowa caucuses in seven days. The um, New Hampshire primary seven or eight days after that. And so, in my view, I mean, there was some tough stuff there. You know, danger to democracy, um, calling him sick 
and then stopping himself before uttering the next word, um, talking about Trump's rhetoric echoing the Nazis. I mean, this was a full-throated and passionate attack on the former president, who then, when he was at a rally in Iowa over the weekend, said that it's Biden who is the danger to democracy. And talking about the weaponization of the Justice Department and all that. In fact, I'll read you something he posted in just a minute. So, you have two presidents accusing each other of being a threat to, you know, basically the American way of life. And clearly, talking about Bidenomics hasn't worked. Clearly, talking about all the laws that uh, have passed under the Biden administration hasn't worked. Uh, Inflation is still perceived as a big problem, even though it's come down tremendously. Stock market has hit a new high. And so this apparently was planned for a long time, obviously tied to Saturday's third anniversary of the January 6th riot. Meanwhile, Washington Post reporting that Barack Obama has raised questions about the structure of Biden's re-election campaign, talking directly to Biden about this, saying that the president's aides and allies need to be empowered to make decisions without clearing them with the White House, according to sources. Obama grew animated in discussing the 2024 election. Uh, He thinks that the Biden campaign is underestimating Trump's political strength. I don't see how that could still be true. It might have been true at the time of this conversation. This was a private lunch at the White House in recent months. Um, Biden had invited Obama to dine with him. Obama talked about the success in his campaign structure in 2012 when some of his top White House aides, David Axelrod, Jim Messina, left the White House to take charge of the re-election campaign. Biden is leaving his closest aides at the White House, even though they're involved in all the major decisions. Obama also saying that Biden could seek counsel from some of Obama's own aides. In other words, let take some of your top people, move them out of the White House, let them run the campaign, and that would make for a faster response time. Obama has long harbored worries about Trump's political strength, telling Biden during a different private lunch last summer, so there's more than one, that Trump is a more formidable candidate than many Democrats realized. So Biden's campaign manager is Julie Chavez Rodriguez, but his top political advisors, Anita Dunn, Jen O'Malley Dillon, Mike Donnell, and Steve Reschetti, they work more than 100 miles away from Wilmington. And everything has to be run by them. Okay. See, the late last night or early this morning, Donald Trump posted this. I will be attending the federal appeals court arguments on presidential immunity in Washington, D.C. That's tomorrow. Of course, I was entitled as president of the U.S. and commander-in-chief to immunity. I wasn't campaigning. The election was long over. I was looking for voter fraud and finding it, which is my obligation to do and otherwise running our country. If I don't get immunity, then crooked Joe Biden doesn't get immunity. 
And with the border invasion and Afghanistan surrender alone, um, Donald Trump had agreed to a peace deal with the Taliban, by the way, even though the execution was clearly botched by the current administration. Not to mention the millions of dollars that went into his, quote, pockets with money from foreign countries, insinuating that president was receiving bribes, Joe would be ripe for indictment by weaponizing the DOJ against his political opponent, me. Joe has opened a giant Pandora's box. The least I'm entitled to is presidential immunity on fake Biden indictments. Notice how they're called the Biden indictments, as if Joe Biden told DOJ to do all this. Now, also in the Washington Post on a different day, we have a piece that looks at how did public perceptions of January 6th change? That there are now attempts to minimize, excuse, or deny the violence of that day. Their cause became championed by pro-Trump writers, amplified by prominent right-wing media figures, The grassroots and media pressure spread from far-right lawmakers, such as, in the opinion of the Washington Post, Paul Gosar and Marjorie Taylor Greene, to take over the Republican mainstream. October of 21, Republicans were saying the insurrection that took place on Election Day, odd, rather than January 6th. Now, on the third anniversary, Republican attitudes about January 6th are increasingly unmoored from other Americans, and Trump holds a commanding lead in the race for the nomination. The share of Republicans who said the January 6th protesters who entered the Capitol were mostly violent dipped to 18%. Remember, it had been 26%. According to a Washington Post University of Maryland poll, more than half of independents and about three-quarters of Democrats believe the protesters were mostly violent. And Trump is going to need some of those voters in the general election if he's the nominee. Worse yet, I think I mentioned this on the podcast last week, more than a third of Republicans believe this conspiracy theory, baseless conspiracy theory that Donald Trump, among others, has encouraged, that the FBI either definitely or probably organized and encouraged the attack. I'm sorry, there is no evidence of that, despite congressional investigations and 725 federal prosecutions. Remember, a lot of people have gone to jail. Meanwhile, on the campaign trail, Trump uh, taking shots at Nikki Haley for daring to run against him after she said she would not. Look, if that was a felony, a lot of politicians would be in jail. Nikki would sell you out just like she sold me out. By the way, she's in the pocket of establishment donors. She's a globalist. And I like America first, says the former president. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Okay, number two. The press is starting to do some deep dives on Nikki Haley. And back in 2010, 
she was one of three Republicans who were challenging the incumbent congressman, J. Gresham Barrett. And he says there was a seismic quake that upended the race. Um, Sarah Palin came to the state and held a rally on the steps of the state house for Nikki Haley. We felt a tectonic shift. Um, it was earth shattering, said Barrett. All three men in the race had dropped in polling and Again, says Barrett, Nikki had gone from single digits to the 20s, and she never came back down. Well, you know, there was a poll, another one now, showing in New Hampshire, Nikki Haley just four points behind Donald Trump. I don't know how accurate that is, but that's her state, just as Iowa was supposed to be Ron DeSantis' state. So in that three-and-a-half-week stretch, that was the turning point for this little-known Indian-American state lawmaker who went on to become governor. Um, She took on the good old boy network, says the Washington Post, all while parrying an onslaught of sexist and racist attacks, including being called a raghead by a fellow lawmaker. Wow. And two claims without evidence that she'd had affairs outside her marriage, which she denied. So obviously there's a parallel here to the surge by Nikki Haley. And we'll see how that plays out. But the difference here is she's still substantially behind Donald Trump. Although, you know, if you look at New Hampshire, there's been different polls with different margins. Number four. By the way, we've got a bonus story coming up, so don't go anywhere. Don't touch that dial. Um, Wayne LaPierre, the longtime chief executive of the National Rifle Association, who really was responsible for turning it into an extremely powerful political force, stepped down from that position on Friday. Why? Because he's heading to a courtroom over allegations that he stole money from this nonprofit organization to bankroll a lavish lifestyle. LaPierre's departure further clouds the future of the NRA, which has had, among other things, declining revenue, spiraling legal fees, and exodus of staff and board members. New York Attorney General Letitia James, you're familiar with her from the civil fraud charges that she uh, has brought against Donald Trump and the Trump Organization. Well, this corruption trial begins today. So it's sort of logical that LaPierre would step down. Now, here's a statement from the publicity-seeking Attorney General of New York who faces millions of dollars in penalties and a ban on being in charge of any charity that does business in New York. Letitia, the end of the Wayne LaPierre era at the NRA is an important victory in our case. 
LaPierre's resignation validates our claims against him, but it will not insulate him from accountability. We look forward to presenting our case in court. So the guy resigns the weekend before he has to go on trial, and she puts out a statement, you know, sort of declaring victory. Most prosecutors don't operate that way. Now, some gun control advocates are very happy about Wayne LaPierre stepping down. Also, some of the people who used to work at the NRA are applauding this because they left because of the concerns about how LaPierre was running the organization. And, in fact, a former NRA official, um, a guy named Josh Powell, reached a settlement with the AG and he is one of the former NRA leaders who's going to testify at this trial. NRA ending last year in uh, more than $22 million in the red. Oh, now we get to the good stuff. Uh, Washington Post says LaPierre and other executives funneled millions belonging to the organization for private jets, posh restaurant bills, and even family trips to the Bahamas. They broke state and federal laws that govern nonprofits. Now, LaPierre put out a statement saying, I've been a card-carrying member of this organization for most of my adult life. I will never stop supporting the NRA and its fight to defend Second Amendment freedom. Which brings me to story five. This is an investigative piece in the Wall Street Journal, which I saw in the print edition, because sometimes these things don't get picked up online or... The mentions are so um, meager that most of the press miss it. It's about Elon Musk. But, well, I guess it is about his conduct in a different way than you might be expecting. Basically, this says that there's a growing concern at Tesla and perhaps at SpaceX about Elon Musk using illegal drugs. Now, when he does things that are, you know, contrarian or hugely controversial, you know, people have come up with people, who, his allies, his supporters say, well, you know, that's an expression of his creativity or his mental health challenges or fallout from stress or sleep deprivation. But now, some executives and board members at his companies have developed a persistent concern that also driving his behavior is his use of drugs. And they fear this could have major consequences, not just for his health, but for the six companies and billions in assets he oversees. The world's wealthiest person has used LSD, cocaine, ecstasy, and psychedelic mushrooms, often at private parties around the world where attendees sign non-disclosure agreements or give up their phones before they can enter, according to people who have witnessed his drug use and others with knowledge of it. Musk has previously smoked marijuana in public. Uh, Look, that's largely been decriminalized in many states, and famously he did so on Joe Rogan's podcast. And he has a prescription, or he said he has a prescription, for the psychedelic-like ketamine. 2018, I mean, this is really takes a lot of investigative digging 
because, you know, you, you publish the, these kinds of allegations, you may well get sued. So the journal reports that in 2018, he took multiple tabs of acid at a party that he hosted in L.A. The next year, he partied on magic mushrooms at an event in Mexico. 2021, he took ketamine recreationally with his brother in Miami at a house party. He has taken illegal drugs with current SpaceX and former Tesla board member Steve Jurvetson. People close to Musk, who's 52, said his drug use is ongoing, especially his consumption of ketamine. I don't know a whole hell of a lot about ketamine. And they are concerned it could cause a health crisis. Even if it doesn't, it could damage his business. Illegal drug use would likely be a violation of federal policies that could jeopardize SpaceX's billions of dollars in government contracts. Musk, to state the obvious, is intrinsic to the value of these companies, so that could put at risk as much as a trillion dollars in assets held by investors, tens of thousands of jobs, big parts of the U.S. space program. And there's more detail. One former Tesla director, Linda Johnson Rice, grew so frustrated with Musk's volatile behavior and her concerns about his drug consumption that she didn't stand for re-election with Tesla in 2019. Now, attorney for Musk, Alex Spiro, said Musk is regularly and randomly drug tested at SpaceX and has never failed a test. Spiro, who says he represents Tesla, added in response, there are other false facts in this article but didn't detail them. You know, there's another incident here. This is back in 2017. Hundreds of SpaceX employees had gathered around Mission Control at the headquarters uh, then in California. Musk shows up an hour late, meeting on the company's latest rocket. When he finally took the stage, says the journal, Musk was strangely incomprehensible at times. He slurred his words and rambled for around 15 minutes, according to executives in attendance, repeatedly repeatedly referred to SpaceX's Big Falcon rocket, known as BFR, as Big Effing Rocket. Okay. SpaceX president, Gwynne Shotwell, ultimately stepped in and took over the meeting. Couldn't be learned if Musk was under the influence that day. But uh, a lot of executives talked about it privately. One described the event as nonsensical, unhinged, cringeworthy. But attorney Spiro said the description of this incident is false, as has been confirmed by countless people who were there. So something tells me there's going to be repercussions from this article. I don't necessarily mean legal. Whether If this enters the narrative about Elon Musk as a chief executive, and not only of X, but of these giant companies like Tesla and SpaceX. It's, let's just say, not going to be great for his reputation. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. And here's the bonus story, I promise. More documents came out from that now-settled lawsuit involving... Jeffrey Epstein, whose death in prison, I guess it's five years ago now, was ruled a suicide. Uh, CNN has a pretty good write-up. 
um, including, you know, you've heard the big names. Bill Clinton, Donald Trump, Prince Andrew. We didn't learn much new about that at all. I don't think we learned one new thing. Juan Alessi, I guess this is a deposition, told attorneys he had dinner with Donald Trump in the kitchen of Epstein's Palm Beach home and met former President Clinton on Epstein's plane. He also said he met Prince Andrew and his ex-wife, Sarah Ferguson, at the Palm Beach home. Alessi testified he met former beauty queens and an unnamed winner of a Nobel Prize in chemistry. Hmm. When asked about the appearances of Clinton's name in a batch of unsealed documents, Clinton spokesman said Clinton had flown on Epstein's private plane, as he's acknowledged for years, but knew nothing of the financier's terrible crimes. Spokesman said it's now been nearly 20 years since President Clinton last had contact with Epstein. Clinton hasn't been accused of any wrongdoing. Trump hasn't been accused of any wrongdoing. But this deposition from Alessi also speaks about the young women who came to the house to give Epstein massages. He said there was one female he understood to be under 18. Her name is still redacted in these documents. Alessi said her mother would occasionally accompany her. In terms of payment, everybody got $100 an hour. And Another accuser, Nadia Marcinkova, was asked, were you with Jeffrey Epstein on his birthday when one of his friends sent to him three 12-year-olds for the purposes of Jeffrey Epstein sexually abusing them? He then asked if the three 12-year-olds were for France, from France. Marcinkova invoked the Fifth Amendment. And Finally, to wrap this up, RFK Jr., and I don't think we've heard this before, was one of Jeffrey Epstein's celebrity guests. And by the way, when you hear about massages, I think it's commonly understood that the massages had happy endings. Um, the new documents, Juan Alessi listed RFK as one of numerous high-profile visitors, along with Alan Dershowitz, Trump, and Sanju, uh, and others. Uh, some guests in the house, including Prince Andrew, received massages. And RFK Jr. acknowledged in December that he had flown twice on the Epstein plane back in the 90s. Quote, my wife had some kind of relationship with Ghislaine Maxwell, his on and off girlfriend, and they offered us a ride to Palm Beach, so I went then. Finally, Former Vanity Fair writer Vicki Ward now pushing back hard on reports that Bill Clinton, this has been circulated for years, showed up at the magazine to try to spike a profile of the aforementioned Jeffrey Epstein. Now, Vicki Ward is a well-respected journalist. Her name shows up a lot in these documents because she was the first to write a long profile of Epstein, the financier-turned-sex trafficker, in 2002, before any of his criminal behavior was known. So the woman who filed the civil suit, who said her sexual 
who alleged that her sexual interactions with Epstein and others began when she was a teenager, Virginia Jufri, says, when I was doing some research into Vanity Fair yesterday, it does concern me what they could want to write about me, considering that B. Clinton walked into VF and threatened them not to write sex trafficking articles about his good friend J.E., the former editor of Vanity Fair, Graydon Carter, has vigorously denied that, says it categorically didn't happen. So here's what Vicki Ward, the journalist, told CNN. I did hear about the story of two sisters, and they were on the record detailing to me, at the time, the abuse they suffered at the hands of Ghislaine Maxwell and Jeffrey Epstein. When Jeffrey Epstein realized that I was in possession of their allegations, he appeared in the offices of Vanity Fair. I knew about this because the fact checker sent me an email saying, oh my God, he's standing here in the office. As I've said before, the allegations were suddenly cut from the piece that was ultimately published. So according to her account, it's Epstein, not Clinton, not anybody else, who got his way and suppressed these allegations, which is a really, really bad judgment call by Vanity Fair, especially in light of all that we know now. Hey, I hope you had a good weekend. Once again, um, Media Buzz segments available online. Thank you for your time in sharing this slightly lengthy podcast with me. That's what you can do. You can, you can go past the buzzer that you can't do on television. I'll see you all tomorrow with more BuzzMeter. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts, and Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table to Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts.